this was a time where science was starting to shrink the world. It was starting to bring everybody together and all of a sudden traveling the world was becoming more possible for an average person than it had ever been before. And so the sense of adventure and like every day there was a new amazing thing coming out that was changing. Yeah. It was the industrial revolution. Like it was changing life as we knew it. And so Jules Verne was sort of riding that wave and people would read that and go like, what's next? Where is this technology going to lead us? Welcome, friends, to episode 279 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Jules Verne's 1872 novel, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This is uh, this is something we've been needing to do for a long time, and I felt like it was a, a gap in my knowledge in the sci-fi genre. Um, now, I, of course, I was aware of Jules Verne. This is somebody uh, you, you hear about. I've seen some adaptations, but I'd never read. And I wanted to look into his biography, find out who he was. I did all of that. So I'm excited to share all of that with you today, James. But uh, yeah, this is a big one. Jules Verne, yeah, really interesting figure for adventure stories and sci-fi, fantasy, um, maybe more so sci-fi. But I remember, you know, after Harry Potter, when I was a kid looking for more adventure stories in my librarian actually recommended Jules Verne to me. Oh, wow. so I read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I read Journey to the Center of the Earth. But I was so young that it was just a fun adventure story. And, yeah. you know, rereading it for the podcast was it was a trip. It feels like a thousand adventures that you have all in the course of one book. Like it's epic in scale. And if mm -hmm. you globetrot all over the world, it's it's a big one. Yeah, man, it's uh, that lines up with everything I've heard about him. Um, he he got famous for writing adventure sci-fi books. Um, he is considered one of the fathers of science fiction as a genre, um, one of the progenitors. I think most people look to Mary Shelley. Um, that is another author we covered. Her uh, her book Frankenstein came out in 1818. So for reference, this is 1872. So predates this. Um, he had a, he was a contemporary of H.G. Wells, who's an author we haven't got to yet, but I want to, who is also yeah. considered one of the sort of forefathers of it. Even Edgar Allan Poe, I was reading, um, popularized using science to like lend a, ver a sense of veracity to your stories. And he got mm. famous for doing that, some of his work. And in fact, he was um, Jules Verne's uh, favorite author, which we'll get into oh, wow. a little bit. Uh, yeah, he loved Edgar Allan Poe. Um, so lots, lots of cool stuff to talk about him, but what I think is most notable is that even among all of those authors, Jules Verne is known as someone who took science um, and did exhaustive research into the science of the day and then would use that to extrapolate out into theoretical applications of existing science. Mm -hmm. And that kind of science fiction um, now you see touches of it, right? Like we talked, we talked about why Frankenstein was written the way it was. And like, there was theories and stuff, but like that goal and that, um, preponderance of factual information that makes it into your book that then you take the next step and the next step that became a hallmark of science fiction as we know it today. Right. And especially what we would call hard science fiction. So fiction that has at least a basis in real science. Um, and, and that was something that Jules Verne is really one of the first people to do. So mm -hmm. when I look at something like The Martian, even today, like if you follow it all the way back, 
you get to stuff by Jules Verne, right? Yeah, and it does make it, those stories feel much more grounded to have the things that we're familiar with. You know, many things in this story are clearly fiction. They were they were legends or things like that that find their way in. But since there's this background and basis in technology of the time, taking those steps forward, uh, you know, it really does flesh out the world and make it feel so fantastical and something that we, we could attain at some point. And yeah. do you think that, you know, we've talked about this a few times actually as well. Um, we talked about it with things like the the communicators and Star Trek. Like this is, you have to kind of look back at these stories some of the time and be like, does this device, does, you know, submarine travel, I know it was kind of maybe coming up around this time, but some of the things that he extrapolates out, do those things exist because he wrote them? And then people were like, let's try to make that. Mm -hmm. Or do they were they always going to exist and, and he was just kind of on the cutting edge? I mean, that's just a discussion about science fiction in general, right? Like, it, it, but I think it goes back to Verne, sure, um, and others. Um, yeah, I mean, he when you're taking existing science and you're extrapolating out, extrapolating out different ways to utilize it, um, then when some of that comes true, you know, it's like it, who who came up with that idea? Like, sometimes stuff is is developed independently because he was just right about how some of that stuff could be used. And a lot of times he's wrong. Yeah, I was going to say, um, But we tend to remember the, one, the times where he's right, and he's famous for the yeah. times where he's right, but there's plenty of times where he was very wrong. So, um, you know, he, and he did a lot of that in all these books. And he wrote, he was a prolific author, wrote a ton of novels. Um, excited to get into his biography and talk about him more as a person. I think that's going to be actually a big chunk of this episode yeah. um, because there's a lot to get into there. Um, I am excited to find out whether he was this explorer. I know he's very curious about this kind of stuff, but I want to know, did he, was he worldly? Was he traveled? Is this something that he liked in theory or is this something that he yeah. also became a part of? Because it feels well, like Captain Nemo I'll, might have I'll been I'll just some... go ahead and answer that one. Uh, not really. He um, Wish fulfillment he, for him, right? Captain yeah, Nemo he went was to America some... once for a week. Um, he, he did have a, uh, a series of boats. He really liked the sea. Um, there is some legends around him, potentially being a stowaway when he was a young kid, um, which we'll talk about whether or not that was, is true is unknown. Um, but mostly he spent his entire life in France and wow. everything he was writing about really was based off of exhaustive research of other papers People like journalists would go to places and write about what it was like in other parts of the world. And he would take that stuff and put it into his books. Yeah. And most of this stuff he, he never saw for himself. Um, he, you know, around the world in 80 days, you know, like those kind of books, like a lot of that was just based off of the stuff he read. Um, yeah, that's pretty impressive. You know, I think that's really cool, honestly, that he was able to do that. Yeah, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that. I just want to describe the episode a little bit for people. Um, we also are going to get into this to the book itself. We're going to spend a good chunk of time on that. Um, it is pr probably the most famous underwater novel. I think safe to say I am currently querying literary agents with an underwater science fiction novel. I have a lot of thoughts about it as it relates to the book I wrote, um, especially since I hadn't read this at the time when I wrote the book, but I don't want that the episode to be about that. So we're going to include a little section at the very end, if people are curious, where I'll talk about some of that stuff. Um, it might come up a little bit, but I'm going to save most of it for the end. Now let's talk a little bit generally about like how we felt about the book. Yeah, so I think I remember the first half of the book well. Second half of the book goes to some wild places, and I found... Maybe you never finished it. <laughs> as a modern reader, there's a few things that I bounced off of. The first is the pacing is really weird it, it's sometimes it's breakneck 
sometimes it's like they're spending so much time talking about the intricacies of the ecosystem in some area and i just found it to be like kind of inconsistent and that that kind of threw me for a loop there were times where i was like okay i'd like to move through this a little faster maybe uh and I, typically i'm the kind of person that's fine with a slow burn but it's the, the the rapid change was a little much for me and then just at, you know the sensibilities of a modern reader for somebody who wrote a book in 1870 whatever you said three two two yeah there was some racism there's like sure. just like unabashed racism too to where yeah. it's like they're calling people savages and they're like, it was you know the thinking of the time for people in france you know of a certain social status that jules verne was that there were like hierarchies of people and he identified with our main character now you know some of it is questioned a little bit I'll, I'll, I'll grant but um for the most part yeah it's just it's pretty blatant um and it's it's definitely tough as a modern reader um, I just have to look at it like an archaeologist, right? Yeah. Going back and reading something this old. To put it into context, um, the only other books we've read that are older than this, I believe, are Jane Austen novels, uh, Emma and Pride and Prejudice. Wow. Um, even even uh, A Princess of Mars was written in 1912, so 40-something years after Technically, this. Snow White is a, you know... Yeah, so I was going to say, the only, the only other exceptions are we've covered a couple of, like, old fairy tale type stories that go way back, obviously, and have unknown origins. Um, and then, like, Green Knight, stuff like that, where it's, like, very, very ancient. Um, but as far as, like, novels, yeah, only, only a few, right? Um, so I think it's important. That's probably part of what's going on. Um, the way it was published is, I think, influences this. It's also the way a lot of his stuff was published is he, they would be released as like periodicals in these magazines, uh, chapter by chapter. And, you know, each chapter needed to deliver a new, awesome, you know, tableau, uh, the ongoing adventures, right? And you would you would see a new place and it would describe all the things that are in there. And he goes really on and on about the flora and fauna and what it looks like. His whole theme that recurs over and over again in his work is the man versus nature theme that like, honestly, you think that the Martian is like an example of that today, but in general, isn't as popular today as it was back then. He is much more interested in engaging with that than like questioning the ramifications of technology and how it will affect us and philosophically, ethically, that kind of stuff that you might look at someone like Mary Shelley and say, that's a lot more what Frankenstein was about, right? And yeah. like, you know, philosophical questions about what it means to be a person. He doesn't get into that kind of stuff as much. He's much more interested in like, what technology is gonna enable us to do as humans, where it can take us, and then leaning into the adventure of that because he got very popular with a young audience. He was he was like famous for being something that young boys loved to read. Um, and when he got famous for that and started making tons of money, that became his thing, right? And we can talk about how that affected his body of work. One of the things I definitely wanted to highlight was how self-contained each of these stories felt in every chapter. And so the fact that it was released by chapter makes a yeah. ton of sense. It does feel like the sort of like bedtime story where it's you can mm. sit down with your kids, read a little bit and say, until next time, here's the cliffhanger yeah. to think about this. And that's interesting because I think that's just a modern interpretation of that kind of storytelling. Mm. You could also look at it as episodic as like television, right? A lot of TV episodes will do that, right? They'll tell a somewhat contained story, but then there'll be a linking thing at the end, some sort of hook to take you into the next chapter. 
into the next episode. Yeah. Um, but so even just the fact that like each individual chapter almost has its own morality tale in it, or it's, or it's focusing on a different thing. It's not necessarily like tying all of the chapters together. True. Yeah. It's the ongoing adventures of right. our characters. Right. Um, which, which we'll definitely get into. Um, it was kind of difficult and, and it went on, it was kind of laborious at times with all of the like overwhelming level of detail and it's difficult, too, for me because I knew that a lot of it was extrapolations on existing science at the time. Some of that science that he's basing it off of has since been proven to be inaccurate or insufficient. Mm -hmm. But then also the extrapolations he was making sometimes would be something that would pan out. And other times the stuff that was not possible, you know, this didn't lead to that. This wouldn't this wouldn't show that that's not what this would have been like. And as someone who's done a lot of research into underwater stuff uh, for my book, um, I was, you know, a lot of times I was like, well, that's inaccurate. That's not how this would look. That's not, you know, and I having all these stuff going on, too. Um, but then, yeah, just like a laundry list of descriptions of different creatures and the way, you know, the, the, the plants were and all this stuff. And like, that's not the most interesting thing for me to read. Um, just admittedly, like I am much more interested in character. I am much more interested in drama and um, interpersonal struggle, um, even as I explore a scientific adventure, I, I, I connect with the people. And I definitely felt very distant from a lot of our characters here. I did find Nemo, and I think he's one of the most famous characters in literature for this reason, but I found Nemo to be very interesting. Um, he's very mysterious. Mm -hmm. um, he's often referenced, much has been written about him as a character. But our main character is Professor Aranax and his uh, servant, and then this, uh, like, harpooner, Ned, that comes Land. along. His, his name yeah, is Ned, Ned Land, and they call him Land all the time. Uh, yeah, and then we have uh, his servant, Kensei, uh, who, who is, yeah, definitely kind of a problematic character throughout. Um, and those are our three, like, main touchstones. But really, is Professor Aranax. He's, the, he, he's writing this in first person, purporting it to be, like, I spent all this time in the past with, with Nemo. Let me tell you about it. Yeah. Um, and that part of that was some of the appeal of his books, from what I understand, is like this was still a time where people were very unclear about the difference between news and fiction. <laughs> so when they were reading this stuff, often people thought like this was real. This was like a real report. And when they read about um, the balloons, like he had this book, um, it's not Around the World in 80 Days. It's uh, like Five Weeks in a Balloon, I think it was an early novel. Okay. It was published around the same time that like a real inventor had made a balloon and attempted a like a, a long distance travel. It didn't get as far as, as it did in the book, but they came out around the same. It came out around the same time that actually happened. So a bunch of people bought it thinking it was like a real report of what the guy had done. Um, so he he was like sometimes get lucky with that kind of um, it was kind of like a wink, wink, nod, nod. You know, I'm sure lots of people knew it was fiction, but. I'm sure there are a lot of other people who were looking at it and go like, oh, is this actually based off of the real thing? And it yeah. was unclear. I mean, even into the 90s, people were still like, you know, things like Blair Witch were making people yeah. like question whether the fiction is real or not. So, yeah, it's funny sure. to think back to a time where it would be even more so. Well, and thinking about that, this was a time where science was starting to shrink the world. It was mm -hmm. starting to bring everybody together. And all of a sudden, traveling the world was becoming more possible for an average person than it had ever been before. And so the sense of adventure and like every day there was a new amazing thing coming out that was changing. Yeah. It was the industrial revolution. Like it was changing life as we knew it. And so Jules Verne was sort of riding that wave 
And people would read that and go like, what's next? Where is this technology going to lead us? Mm -hmm. And he was telling adventure stories full of just wonderful, crazy things happening, right? You know, going to the center of the earth, um, you know, seeing dinosaurs in a hollow earth, like all this stuff. Like people were like, oh my God, I can't believe this is where we're going. You know, and a lot of that, of course, is not how it panned out, but... Every now and then there was some stuff that panned out and um, he's pretty famous for that as well. He talked about some of the things that I bounced off of in terms of an adventure story. The highs were were pretty high for me, especially putting myself in the shoes of somebody reading it of the time period. The inventive nature of getting to see basically every type of climate, every type of possible place in the earth and some that are not possible, but are, are like, you know, fantastical versions was really fun. And I thought that, you know, Nemo being this mysterious figure who I thought for sure we were going to get some backstory on. We never do because um, there's sort of some some hints that he's been he's from an oppressed people. And so like yeah. he kind of supports those types of people in, in general. But then he's also kind of vicious sometimes. So you're not really sure wh what Nemo's whole motivation is. I'm going to I'm going to circle back to that because I have a lot of backstory as to why Nemo is the way he is. OK, cool. Uh, and then the other thing is when I was a child, I thought that 20,000 leagues under the sea meant like down. 20,000 oh, sure. yeah. 20,000 leagues down and yeah. I went and looked how long a league is it would you cannot go 20,000 leagues down under the sea this is how no, far but they I think traveled. that's a common misunderstanding of a title like even I was unsure what exactly it was referring to right but it's actually referring to the fact that like they went 20,000 leagues around the world mm -hmm. most of it spent under the sea <laughs> exactly yeah so, yeah. yeah, I, you know, and, and then, but then I, in my memory of it, I was like, 20, Jules Verne kind of like, you know, there's dinosaurs in the center of the earth. Maybe they do go down there somewhere in, on earth that yeah. they go 20,000 leagues down. You just don't exactly. know. I didn't, I didn't know. Honestly, I'd never read the book before. I wasn't sure what the 20,000 leagues was referring to. Right. Um, and I was like, well, if they're going under that much pressure, uh, I'm sure he's got a lot of that wrong, but we'll see how it goes. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I'm not a scientist admittedly, so I'm not going to like fact check Jules Verne. Um, you know, I'm not confident enough in my knowledge of that. I just was able to recognize a lot of the stuff he was describing was accurate and a lot of the other stuff was not, or it was like borderline. He was extrapolating out on real things, but then maybe taking it in, in directions that, you know, didn't pan out, but it was still very cool to see. And like, honestly, that's something I did a lot in my book as far as like trying to extrapolate out on existing technologies. So, yeah. which we can touch on at the end. And pressurized vessels under the water <laughs> became very relevant to a lot of people recently so yeah you know in thinking ocean gate yeah ocean this, gate. this is taking it for, for posterity this is taking yeah. place I don't, I don't know like like a month or so after ocean gate and the disaster there and the we you know five billionaires in a lost in an implosion um i definitely was thinking about that yeah it's hard while not to. reading this book um i also am playing a game called dredge while well, i was playing a game called dredge and I was listening to the audiobook at times because I tend to switch between the two. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't have you played Dredge? No. Okay. So Dredge is a Lovecraftian horror inspired fishing sim. <laughs> and awesome. you literally are in this little like boat cruising around. It's all like uh, it's got a cool art style. And you're going around to like different villages and talking to people, and they're all like saying weird creepy shit and like you 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 fight madness at night like whenever then it becomes night like fog rolls in and like you yeah. start getting chased by weird shit uh it's a very fun game i really enjoyed it and i was listening to this book for a lot of while i was playing it because it's kind of a, it's also one of those games kind of like where you're doing some busy work you're fishing you know what i mean so it's easy to like do something else while playing it 
Um, and so I thought that was just a fun lineup. I'll, I feel like I'll always think of Dredge now when I think of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. <laughs> yeah. I like to think of games like that that you can play sort of in the background uh, as like ADHD uh, aids. Totally. Like it, helps me, it helps me to focus on other things if I can do something else with my hands or yeah, something. I need, to have, I need to have busy work I can do while I'm, right. while I'm doing that. I'm, I'm with you, man. That sounds like a cool game. Um, and yeah, it was fun. I, I, yeah, I just beat it. It has two different endings. And I, you, can, you can get both of them pretty easily, which is pretty cool. I want to talk a little bit too about like thinking about the story and seeing things that happen in the story, especially now as an adult, having consumed a lot more material, reading this story and seeing where people were influenced by this story has been really interesting. Like almost anything underwater is, is in some way referencing oh, yeah. this story. And, you know, I, I just couldn't, I can't help but think about like the magnitude to, of the influence of something like this and Jules Verne, maybe in general, you know, I'd like to hear more about that. It seemed like he set the stage for other people to write stories like this. And even in his book, yeah. he's referencing like Moby Dick and some things like that now and again right. so it's cool to see that kind at of at some point i feel like we're gonna tackle moby dick i'm not necessarily looking forward to it i'm interested i'm interested but i just know that that is a massive tome and full of a lot of jargon about whaling um so i'm not necessarily looking forward to the experience of reading it even though it's such an important novel maybe i'll enjoy it more than i think i don't literary know. great right like one that yeah. is one of those books that it feel like you have to read before absolutely you yeah. And you're you're totally right. Like, uh, yes, he was influenced by all these other authors at the time. He's definitely influenced by that. Um, it's referencing Odysseus and like ancient works. He was a big fan of Victor Hugo, I think was his like literary like idol, uh, okay. even though his favorite author I think I read was Poe. Um, but yeah, I mean, his influence, uh, it, it can't be overstated. It's it, 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 as far as, you know, science fiction goes, and especially the sort of like space adventure that we're used to now, that vibe, I think he was the one who really kicked that off. And the other thing is like, he is so popular. I was kind of shocked to learn, and we'll start diving into his bio here a little bit, because it has some answers for you and some of your questions you've, you've raised. But um, he is the second most translated author Wow. Behind only Agatha Christie. I was going to say. Ahead of been, William right? Shakespeare. Wow. That's crazy. Isn't that wild? Yeah. That's what I read. Second most translated author in the world. Um, so when you're talking about influence, that shows you, you know, enough. Um, yeah. So so let's get into the man a little bit, and then we can we can circle back to his legacy. Jules Gabriel Verne was born in 1828 and would die in 1905. He was a French novelist, poet, and playwright. His collaboration with the publisher Pierre Jules Hetzel led to the creation of the Voyages Extraordinaires, a series of best-selling adventure novels, including Journey to the Center of the Earth, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and Around the World in 80 Days. His novels, always well-documented, are generally set in the second half of the 19th century, taking into account the technological advances of the times. Um, so I watched a bunch of stuff about this guy. I watched... Um, some documentaries. Um, I read a bunch of stuff. My my copy had like this whole introduction written out um, that talked about him. So there's a lot of interesting stuff. I'm not going to be able to get through all of it. And I, I recommend people look for that kind of stuff if they want to know more. I'm going to touch lightly on some of what I, I remember. Um, one thing you, you asked about was his like his adventure, his adventure venturing in his life and how much he got out. Legend has it that at the age of 11, uh, Vern secretly procured a spot as cabin boy on the three-mast ship, the Coralie, with the intention of traveling to the Indies and bringing back a coral necklace for his cousin Caroline, um, which was his first love, by the way. He like had a big crush on her, and she rejected him. But um, he, uh, the evening it was to set out for the Indies, that supposedly his father arrived just in time to catch his son 
and uh, told him that he had to promise to travel only in his imagination. Um, and supposedly this legend is an exaggerated tale of something that actually happened, but it's unknown how much is true. Um, apparently his first biographer um, kind of kind of invented this thing and, and played it up as, a, as the, the genesis or his adventuresome spirit. Um, speaking of his home life, he, he basically was raised to become a lawyer. That was what his father wanted for him. Um, he was kind of a nerdy kid, didn't do well with the ladies. Um, like I said, had a, his first big crush was on his cousin. Um, she, she ended up rebuffing him. He went to Paris, uh, to, to go to college essentially. And instead of studying law, he got immersed in the, um, artistic scene in Paris. And this ended up becoming like really foundational for him as a writer. Um, and he, you know, this was to the great disappointment of his father who wanted him to be a lawyer. Um, and then he also fell in love with a woman there and they had like a courtship, but she ended up uh, marrying someone else who had like better prospects. Cause at the time he only had like one coat to his name and he was trying to be an artist rather than trying to do something more respectable, quote unquote. <laughs> um, however, he did meet a bunch of people. He apparently, um, became friends with, uh, Alexander Dumas father um who like kind of took him under his wing uh so dumas was was would be a contemporary of his then that's like uh a, a three musketeers author okay. um so this ended up becoming very important for him right and he was he, he was reading victor hugo at the time who was alive and writing um he was enmeshed in the sort of french uh scene literary scene at this time it was also a time of great political upheaval in France. I don't know a lot of the details, <laughs> um, but, you know, France has gone through a lot of periods of political upheaval. So this was one of those times, from what I understand. Um, and he actually was uh, quite uh, politically opinionated, and, and he had a lot of thoughts about that that we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to. So in 1841, he would publish his first novella called The Mutineers. And this book actually ended up having a lot of the hallmarks of his fiction. It included technical details. It included a, a character who was struggling with nature. It was an adventure story. Um, and it did okay. He took this, this to heart, right? He had been doing a bunch of research. He had this habit of going to the library and just reading all kinds of stuff in, in particular, but also um, scientific papers at the time, um, all this stuff that was like available to him in the library. Um, and this was a lifelong habit he would cultivate, and it would eventually become very important for his work to do that. Next up, he uh, he ended up becoming married to a woman named Honoré, um, and this marriage would end up becoming quite fraught throughout his entire life. Um, they did have children together, but he didn't really, it didn't seem like he was really in love with her. She didn't really know what to make of him. Um, he He agreed to become a stockbroker. In order to sort of appease her, she was from money. Um, she didn't really know what to make of his writing. She considered it kind of a weird hobby he had. She wasn't interested in reading any of it early on. And so especially for a while when he was trying to kick off his writing career, he was also at the same time trying to start this career as a stockbroker. His father was like, what the fuck? I, I thought you were going to be a lawyer and then you wanted to be a writer and now you're going to be a stockbroker. Like, what's going on? Um, but he's like, yeah, this is just, you know, I got to make I got to make ends meet. So. Totally understand how, why, how that would happen, right? Um, yeah. And he writes this book, Five Weeks in a Balloon, and he can't find a publisher for it. And eventually, uh, is Dumas, uh, I can't remember if it was himself or his father, um, ends up putting him in contact with a man named Jules Hetzel. So apologies if I'm mispronouncing these names. Um, but it's Pierre Jules Hetzel. I've just seen it shortened to Jules sometimes. Um, 
you can't really talk about Jules Verne without talking about Hetzel, in my opinion, because of how important this man ended up being. Hetzel and him become friends in the sense that he is going to be his publisher. Hetzel's 14 years older than him, so a little bit wiser. You know, he's he's a publisher, right? So he knows marketing. He knows, like, how to get books out into this current climate. Mm-hmm. And Hetzel puts out his book. And like I said, it coincided with another, like this guy actually doing a balloon, like flying in a balloon. And so it had some success. And so Hetzel said, okay, well, what's, you know, what's next? What, what else do you got for me? I might be wrong about some of the order of this, but essentially one of the first books that uh, Vern gave to Hetzel after, after the success of Five Weeks in a Balloon was a book called Paris in the 20th Century. Now, Paris in the 20th Century was a dark vision of the future in which Paris had become obsessed with money. It was a bustling, overcrowded city. It had so much technology and people in it that it was affected by uh, pollution in the air. It was a world where art had been devalued and everyone cared about like capital. And the main character was a young poet like trying to find purpose in this new... Uh, version of the future. There was even this like super tall steel structure that a lot of people said sounds a lot like the Eiffel Tower, which wouldn't be built for another 20 years. Wow. Um, so kind of wild, right? But he gave this book to Hetzel and Hetzel looked at it and said, uh, we can't publish this. This is too dark. Your 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 readers aren't going to like it. This is too, you're going to have to give me something else. And he basically said no. To the dystopian future, so maybe an early. He dystopian said, "No, this novel. is this is too dark. This is too troubling. This isn't going to appeal to your younger audience, which he was already starting to cultivate." Mm-hmm. Said, said no. So Vern, Jules Verne throws that in a, a a trunk somewhere, trunks the book, and changes course. Writes Journey to the Center of the Earth. Journey to the Center of the Earth establishes him again as a very popular author. He wasn't yet like wealthy off of his books, but it does well. Hetzel had th- definitely had a like plan for how to market these books. He had the means. He, I think he owned multiple magazines. He was able to start publishing them in periodic uh, in uh, segments, right? That readers became invested in. Um, it's unclear whether or not the sharing of the profits was entirely entirely ethical. Um, it's hard to know. So far removed, but it seems like maybe Hetzel was the bigger beneficiary of this relationship. Um, But Jules Verne considered him a good friend, published almost all of his books with him. And he was the main editor of his work. He, he, everything that Verne ended up publishing came through him. What he would edit out is anything that was politically upsetting for people or for other countries, because Verne was already starting to become internationally popular. Um, specifically in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, this would become very relevant, which he would write in a couple of years here. Um, Before we get to that, though, he wrote a book called From Earth to the Moon, which I think is notable because in that book, he predicted a lot of things about space travel that would actually come true, including um, picking a spot 100 miles away from, uh, what is it, Cape Canaveral (laughs) um, in in Florida, you know, predicting that it would have to launch from Florida, a rocket, and then even predicting like around where it would need to land in the ocean after it returned, um, described the ship in ways that were actually pretty accurate to how it would end up, you know, the, the, the rocket would actually become. 
um, all kinds of things ended up being pretty close to accurate. And it, it, it's like, it's one, this is one of those that people look at and go like, how did he do this? Yeah. You know, a hundred years before space travel would be possible. I wonder, yeah. I mean, I, maybe he just understood the temperatures would be better for launches. I don't know. Well, apparently um, the real reason is similar to the reason he chose, which is being closer to the equator is better for space travel. And mm-hmm. so that's why we launched from Florida. It's because it's the closest point to the equator and, and the you know continental U.S. So apparently that's why. Mm-hmm. And he touched on that too. He was a fan of America. He went there, like I said, for like one week, one time. And he was a big fan of like, there was, I think this is around the time of some of those world fairs. There was a lot of innovation going on. Mm-hmm. It seemed like America was really like an up and coming country that had a lot of go-getters who were like inventing stuff and wanting to push things forward. So I think he, he was fond of that. And that's why... I think he picked America to be the one to launch this this rocket. So that's a notable book in that in that regard, even if it's not one of his like most well read. Um, and then, yeah, he would write 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Legend has it. He wrote much of it on the um, ship back from America, like uh, via ship. He was on he was on board a ship as he wrote it. Unclear whether or not that's true. There's a lot of legends about him, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Another thing to mention about Jules Verne incredibly prolific. He would deliver three books a year on average. Um, he ended up publishing 66 novels over the course of his career. So yeah, he averaged about three books a year, which is pretty insane. Like that's, that is a very fast author considering how well researched these books were too. If you think about it, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, and he was often for, at this time he was still trying to work his normal job because he wasn't making enough money off of his books yet to like become a full-time author. Um, 20,000 leagues under the sea, would be his next um, hit. This was a, a, po- a popular book at the time. It predicted um, an advanced submarine, electric submarine. Um, se- now, someone had invented a working submarine prototype in the 1800s. Um, the man uh, called it the Nautilus, which is what he ended up calling his his ship here as like homage to him. Um, so it was like an existing technology, but nothing like what we see here, right? And a lot of what we see with the Nautilus in this book is is well ahead of his time and much of it became possible with with future iterations right so um but one of the things that sets this book apart is the character of captain nemo so captain nemo was originally envisioned by um jules verne to be of polish descent he was to have lost his family his his wife and kids uh he was going to be a polish uh aristocrat i think Nobleman. His children and his wife were killed in uh, in a Russian imperialist um, war against Poland because that is something that had really happened. Yeah, like Russia yeah. had really had really uh, waged war on Poland. I as I understand it, he sent that to our, uh, Hetzel, and Hetzel said, "Uh, so you're published in Russia. France just signed a treaty with Russia, and now they're allies. So we can't be." publishing a book that makes Russia look bad. So uh, apparently this actually made made him pretty angry, Vern. And he um, has some angry letters back and forth about it, but he wound up capitulating to it. And instead of giving him another backstory, he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to make him have a mysterious backstory. He's just going to kind of have no backstory. And so he stripped it all away. You can still see some remnants of it in there. But he made him of an ambiguous um, nationality. He had maybe, I think we, we have references to the kids and the wife, but like we don't know why. Yeah. He doesn't ever name a specific country. 
Um, and in fact, even the name Nemo apparently is a, a translation of a term that Odysseus gave to the Cyclops. Yeah. And it means nobody or no one. Hmm. I thought you were going to say it's a little little clownfish or something that they have to go find. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, that was Pixar a little later. A little, little reference there too, yeah. Um, I wonder if taking stripping away his backstory made him more mysterious and more alluring to, to people. To well, readers. that's the thing. Like on one hand, it's a little frustrating. And people have pointed out that Vern was a lot more political than his books were. Because Hetzel actively took out anything that would be upsetting to the time. And he, anything he saw in there that might get him banned in, a, in like a different country, like Russia, he would say, take it out. And yeah. Vern did it. So a lot, for, for that reason, a lot of his books are sort of sanitized and we don't have the original versions of most of them, right? We only have the versions that got published. So it's hard to know what, it was, what they were, what they would have been like without that influence. And in fact, he often would take out anything that was like potentially upsetting to, to like, you know what I mean? To like anybody. Yeah. And he would try and get them as, as commercially accessible and popular as he could make them. Now, on one hand, you could say that contributed to Vern's massive success. That's why he was so popular. That's why he's so well known today. But on the other hand, you can be frustrated for the censorship of maybe what we would have gotten. And the yeah. reason I brought that uh, Future in Paris book up earlier um, is that that novel was found by his great grandson in a safe in a garage. Wow. And it was eventually published in 1994 for the first time. Oh, that would be cool to read, too. And apparently this is like one of the best examples of what we might have seen had he not been edited by Hetzel throughout his entire career. It also sounds just intriguing for a Jules Verne novel, like a dystopian, yeah. you know, Paris. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm kind of interested in that book, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I thought that was cool. His great grandson found it. Pretty legendary. That's, yeah, uh, pretty know. cool. The book that would really make him as popular as we know him today was Around the World in 80 Days. That book went off like crazy. It was viral for the time, you know. Um, it was so popular that it actually became one of the first novels that had merchandise. It had, there were games, there were board games made Around the World in 80 Days. There were likenesses, there were things that were sold with it. Um, it became immediately got adapted into a play that ran for 50 years and went all over the country and all over the world. Um, and a lot of his books ended up becoming plays after this. And this is what made him wealthy. This, this book was so popular that he um, truly had the level of success that we sort of associate with him today. Also, this book is credited with being the inspiration for, if not on purpose, but serving as the inspiration for the steampunk genre and its entire aesthetic. So that's why you'll really? often see Jules Verne associated with steampunk. I can definitely see that. When Nemo was describing some of the inner workings of the vessel and, and the, the sort of how it was look how it looked, I, I could, because it was like a weird form of electricity. And I was definitely yeah. thinking along those lines. Well, a lot of his work has sort of retroactively been considered that. It's also that like late 19th century vibe. Right. But specifically around the world in 80 days, the balloons and something about the attire that I think they were described as wearing with the goggles and all that stuff. Like goggles that's the, the steampunk aesthetic. I see. Yeah. A lot of it comes from him. Pretty cool talking about his influence, right? Um, being, being so huge. Um, unfortunately, his personal life was not great during all of this he was unhappy with his marriage as i told you um eventually his wife did come around 
to being uh, on, on board and proud of him. Obviously, he was bringing in money, but their relationship was still very cold. Um, his He had a son who he had a very fraught relationship with. Um, his son apparently got into a lot of trouble. Um, he ended up having to pay out like 200,000 francs at one point just to like out offset his son's debts. They had a very uh, tumultuous relationship, which apparently made it into several of his books, like a father-son dynamic. Mm. Um, oh, the other thing I should say, got to give a little bit of credit to Hetzel, even though like he can sometimes be viewed as a villain. Um, Hetzel had been asking Vern to include some romance in some of his books, and Vern kept refusing. Vern was like, I don't want that in there. It's a distraction. I'm not interested in writing it. He finally relented, and uh, in Around the World in 80 Days, um, apparently there's a, there's a romance at the heart of that plot. I don't know much about it, but it became his most famous novel. So that's the kind of thing where you're like, well, maybe Hitzel was onto something there. Yeah. It's surprising to me that Around the World in 80 Days was was his most famous, because it feels like Journey to the Center of the Earth might be bigger in my mind but yeah yeah I, it's hard to say what's more famous now it was the biggest hit of its time and it made him the most money yeah yeah i don't know what has gone on I'm, Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea might be his most famous now i don't know there's a lot of very famous ones that he wrote right it's one of those probably though like journey to the center of the earth like we said a lot of, mm-hmm. one of those probably but um yeah i don't know which one's the most but as i was talking about his personal life he um apparently he found some happiness at at some point when he um he started seeing a mistress um, he would have Hetzel write letters to him and he would say like, tell me I need to come to Paris at this exact day to come like look at proofs and then Hetzel would do it. So like Hetzel was kind of in on it and would request him to come to Paris and that's where he would, that's where he would see his mistress, which apparently did bring him a lot of joy in it like later in his life. Um, but then in, I think it was 1885, um, three things happened all very close to one another that kind of changed him for the rest of his life. His mistress died. He got shot in the leg by a nephew who, quote, went mad. So I don't know what was up with that. And then um, Hetzel passed away, all within very close to each other. And this made him a very different uh, person going forward. Apparently, he had to give up his boats um, because he couldn't balance enough. He developed a limp, couldn't balance himself enough on his boats, which is like one of the things that he would often go on and like to get away from his family that he didn't like very much. Um, and so that was like one of the things that he really loved that was taken away from him. And then apparently his books got a lot darker and a little more, um, pessimistic about science and where it was taking humanity. Um, cause for a long time, his books were all about like joyful, like science is going to do all this great stuff for us. And then like his later works were a little bit less of that, but he continued working right up until his death. Uh, from what I understand up until the age of 77, when he passed away. Um, he was still he was still working. He was still writing, you know, c- continued to be pro- prolific throughout his entire life. Hugely influential. The inventor of the first helicopter was inspired by uh, a book uh, that that Vern wrote where he described a helicopter in it. Um, the inventor of what would become the, a, a modern advanced submarine was in, was inspired by 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, said so. The man who first went to the North Pole was inspired by reading about that happening in a Jules Verne novel. Yeah. Um, just this kind of stuff. Like people grew up, all these kids grew up reading these adventure books and reading about the science. And a lot of them wanted to make it happen, wanted to make it real. So his his influence is 
like immeasurable, I think, in, in some ways, in the way that it inspired people to actually create things and to do things. So that's really incredible. And uh, another podcast uh, author we've covered, Ray Bradbury, summarized Verne's influence on literature and science uh, the world over by saying, quote, we are all in one way or another, the children of Jules Verne. So yeah. I, I think that's a good way to leave his bio, but like it's, I've left out a lot, but um, it just, just to show how important he is for the genre as a whole. And, you know, maybe he's not the originator of science fiction, but like the kind of science fiction, I think people often associate with like, you know, space travel and that kind of stuff you could argue he's at least one of, if not the father of that. The way that an artist can plant an idea, some imaginary thing in someone's mind, and then they can pursue that as like a goalpost and say, that's what we want to do. It's pretty incredible to see that. Um, and we've seen that many, many times, but Jules Verne seems to have done it in a very specific way at a very specific time uh, yeah. that makes his, you know, his legacy kind of stand on that. If nothing else, if he didn't sell, you know, the second most books ever, he <laughs> he inspired people to create some of these amazing technological advancements. I don't know about sales, but second most translated was is that, is that the same as sales? I don't know, maybe. But um, let's let's move into the book. I know we're we're gonna end up running long here, so I want to jump right into it. So during the year 1866, ships of various nationalities sight a mysterious sea monster, which might be a gigantic narwhal. The U.S. government assembles an expedition to find and destroy the monster. Professor Pierre Aranax, a French marine biologist, is in town at the time and receives a last-minute invitation to join the expedition. Canadian whaler and master harpooner Ned Land and Aranax's faithful manservant, Conseil, are also among the participants. The expedition leaves Brooklyn aboard the frigate Abraham Lincoln, then travels south into the Pacific Ocean. After a five-month search ending off Japan, the frigate locates and attacks the monster, which damages the ship's rudder. Aranax and Land are hurled into the sea, and Kensei jumps into the water after them. They survive by climbing onto the monster, which, they are startled to find, is a futuristic submarine. They wait on the deck of the vessel until morning, when they are captured, hauled inside, and introduced to the submarine's mysterious constructor and commander, Captain Nemo. I love the setup, the idea of a monster in the water that's taking down ships and this legend growing as communication between uh, the UK and the US are sort of getting closer. That was really fun and I was really invested and I like the way that that first chapter sets it off in like sort of a different POV before we get into RNX. Um, so so for me, I, I was unclear on like how significant the... Uh, I assumed octopus, maybe squid. Actually, I think I was thinking more squid um, was going to be in this story. Mm -hmm. And there was talk about, you know, potential Leviathan. There was a lot of discussions about like, what is this thing? I quickly figured out that it was the the submarine. But for a moment, I was like, is this the like creature? Are we setting up the creature that's going to become important at the end? Because I'd never read this book before. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I thought it was fun that like it showed that they had no concept of what the, what this could possibly be. So they yeah. assumed it was this gigantic narwhal, like spear and ships and shit. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, somebody at some point says that the technology is like 100 years ahead of its time. And he pretty much yeah. nailed that, too. It kind of was 100 years ahead of its time. Um, Nemo was, uh, you know, the like you said, the cast of characters are a little two dimensional. Kinsei is is just so cringy because he's like he's supposed to be like 30 
yet Aranax calls him my boy constantly. He's like, oh, my, all right, boy, good, you know, that's a, you're such a good boy. And I'm just like, oh, stop. And then, like, he is so devoted and, like, oh, I would throw myself into the sea for master and all this stuff. It was like, he was like Dobby almost, yeah. you know, right? It was, it was like, it was like kind of cringy yeah. to hear and, like, to imagine this guy. And it was clearly, like, what is the, like, dream of a manservant, right? Like, it's clearly, like, the ideal manservant being described here. And it's just kind of gross. Yeah. And then Ned, uh, Ned Land, right? Ned. Is this like, I can't ultimate... get over Ned, man. <laughs> it's so funny. That He's guy like... never saw an animal he didn't want to like, murder and eat. Yeah, that was the thing, and right? He continues it's... to never of... see an animal he doesn't want to murder and eat. <laughs> he'll throw rocks at birds. He'll spear giant <laughs> seals, whatever they call he them. He sees something. He's like, I want to fucking get my harpoon. I wish I had my harpoon right now, man. I want to stab <laughs> Ooh, that I thing. My harpoon, you don't even know. You don't even know and what would often he does murder the thing and eat he it. He does, yeah, which is actually really sad and fucked up. Uh, there's like Nemo at one point tells him he's not allowed to kill a group of whales, and I was like, good on you, Nemo. And then, it, I mean, we'll get there, but eventually, then he proceeds <laughs> to like ram the submarine into the yeah. the prey, the predators of the, the whales. Anyway, yeah, Ned, very two dimensional kind of action hero. That you know, I think you can look at Jules kind of doing his wish fulfillment all across the board. I think he wants to be like Nemo. He identifies with. Aranax, he Ned is like the ultimate sort of macho, take yeah. care of business kind of guy, and then he's got the manservant. So it's like all this that wrapped up in some sort of fantasy for for Jules. And I, you know, the manservant thing might even be of the time. It's very probably of the time as well. Yeah. So it's like both sides of it, right? Like like Professor Aranax represents the like learned man who's out there because he's curious about the world and he's got all these theories, but now he's getting to like live it. And um, Ned Land is instead the like the other adventurous type, which is the hunter, right? Who like wants to go and hunt, you know, in Africa and wants to go and hunt all these, you know, this game. And that was very exciting for people at the time. And for a lot of, you know, it was, you know, even today we see that that is still a thing. Um, but I think he appealed to, to readers in that regard too. And he's kind of more of an everyman, which I think made people who aren't necessarily professors be able to come on board with this yeah. a little more. And someone who responded really well, like I, I was a, a young boy that liked comic books that would give me an issue and then we'd have a week off or a month off and we get another issue like i can only imagine what it was like getting this story doled out in the 1870s uh and yeah. like trying to find copies of it and continuing on this journey and honestly there's probably some of it where you can miss a couple and then jump back in and realize they're in, just in another part of the world pursuing whatever ends nemo's trying to get to which oh. again nemo's motivation doesn't even really it starts to come to fruition but I guess we'll talk about it a little bit here. He like kind of wants to just like help oppress people, but then also leave this like lasting legacy, but then also burn his legacy to the ground. It's he, he purports to want to help oppress people. We see him on occasion help people. Yeah. But really it seems to me like he is living like a hermit life now. Like he, he is all about like, he's like disillusioned. Right? And, and With... I've, I've seen him called kind of like a libertarian hero. And I can get that because he he basically says, like, no government applies to me. I am the master of my own world and the sea. Everything that I am, you know, see is something I can claim. I, no law applies to me here. He gets really mad if anybody brings up any, any sort of things being against the law. He is a law in and of himself. He's a very sort of dark romantic figure. I love that he plays like uh, a, an organ. Because I can just imagine yeah. him down at the bottom of the sea, like rocking out on an organ. Yeah. Um, it's very, it's very cool. Right. And he's very mysterious. Um, 
on occasion though he surprises me because he does talk about like oppressed people he talk he's kind of anti-imperialist it seems um he he decries a lot of like the things that different countries are doing to different peoples yeah. and yet at the same time he seems a little bit like a colonizer at times right oh, like totally. he wants to, yeah so it's like <laughs> he's kind of having yeah. it both ways or he wants to yeah. and, and i think it's because but i mean like i think it is radical to have even a character like that at the time express some sort of criticism of it right yeah. like somewhat radical for a you know a book again that was being edited by hetzel who wasn't allowing Vern to be radical at all right and the main character aranax would would basically like any any group of native people he saw he was like the savages and savages and that, yeah and, yeah. Mm-hmm. and, and so then and nemo, nemo at one point challenges him exactly and and i think nemo's point is in his in his perspective everyone is because nemo's yeah. so advanced or something which yeah but also he's like yeah he's like those who you call savages like are just people who live here like right. he, like he does say that but then at times he'll like still kind of be very dismissive of them and treat them as subhuman so it's not like he's always walking the walk but sometimes he says the right things um yeah a very politically interesting figure in that regard um unclear whether or not he is actually just completely out for himself he does seem very selfish to me as a figure well look at the journey like there's some times that they like end up in like the Arctic and he has so much hubris and he's like, I can command over all of nature. And like, yeah. they put, he puts himself them and the entire crew in really bad spots often. Yeah, totally. I mean, he's arrogant. Um, he doesn't want he doesn't like want to engage with anything that goes against exactly what he wants. Um, Cause he's considered himself like King of this vessel. And is there, mm-hmm. they're essentially prisoners. We should say, um, we're going to get into it here, but they're told they're not allowed to leave. Um, yeah. So it, they spend years with him. On, yeah. on the on the nautilus and arnak deals with some like stockholm syndrome for sure he's like gets to the point oh. where he loves his captor he, he totally wants to, like prisoners yeah. is in air quotes because they seem to be really into it for a while land <laughs> is the only one who keeps trying to plan to get off because they keep they keep telling him not to like harpoon everything and he's like come on yeah. if i can't harpoon everything what am i gonna do well and how <laughs> on the nose is the fact that like the the one who loves the land and needs to be he wants to get back his last name is land wasn't yeah. lost on me i was like that's hilariously on the nose okay so so begins the protagonist's adventures aboard the nautilus which was built in secrecy and now roams the seas beyond the reach of land-based governments in self-imposed exile captain nemo seems to have a dual motivation a quest for scientific knowledge, and a desire to escape terrestrial civilization. Nemo explains that his submarine is electrically powered and can conduct advanced marine research. He also tells his new passengers that his secret existence means that he cannot let them leave. They visit many ocean regions, some factual and others fictitious. The travelers view coral formations, sunken vessels from the Battle of Vigo Bay, the Antarctic Ice Barrier, the Transatlantic Telegraph Cable, and the legendary underwater realm of Atlantis. They even travel to the South Pole and are trapped in an upheaval of an iceberg on the way back, caught in a narrow galley of ice from which they are forced to dig themselves out. The passengers also don diving suits and hunt sharks and other marine fauna with air guns in the underwater forest of Crespo Island and also attend an undersea funeral for a crew member who died during a mysterious collision experienced by the Nautilus. When the submarine returns to the Atlantic Ocean, a school of giant squid, quote, devilfish, attack the vessel and kills another crewman. That's what we were talking about. It's kind of a list of the ongoing adventures. Each one of those is a chapter. Each one of those has its own, you know, long descriptions of what they see and, and explore. Yeah. Usually has Ned Land killing and eating something and describing yeah. how it tastes. Yeah, <laughs> he, that, that is true. He um, often, like, you know, I mentioned before, these stories tend to have 
different themes within them. Like they'll be like, and I found a lot of them to be pretty beautiful. Like the idea of like them going in these scuba, the scuba gear and going down and looking at these coral reefs and these jelly, massive jellyfish they see, um, you know, they see the, this burial that they have, I thought was pretty, pretty yeah. cool. And, and like a, an interesting look into like a culture that Nemo's kind of created. It's, it's, they've like yeah. almost become their this own mysterious crew rituals. Yeah. They just like work for him. What? And it's like, even if they, he was paying the money, that their entire lives are spent on this vessel. They're essentially servants. Yeah. yeah. But I, I found a lot of the the ongoing adventures to actually be really engaging and fun. Like there's they, they like go to a, a extinct volcano at one point and like yeah. like trek out of it as fun. There's a bunch they're, of birds in there that yeah. they eat. They, there's like a there's a <laughs> tunnel that doesn't actually exist that he goes like between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. Between the seas, yeah. Yeah. You're just very, cool. very inventive and cool and fun and, and like seeing them dive together. Um, but then, yeah, often, you know, they're hunting There's like sharks. There's a pearl or... that, that, like, uh, I think Nemo has been, like, building. And it's, yeah. like, he's, like, created, like, this giant clam to make it. And it's going to be worth, like, 500,000 pounds or something. Yeah, but he almost seems like he's cultivating it because of, like, the nature of it. To me, just is what he it can, felt like. Yeah, like, he's not intending to sell it. He just wants to have, like, the biggest pearl because he knows how it works. <laughs> but uh, the he other thing, too, is the shark historic... with a dagger. He does, and then and then Ned saves him by murdering the shark with his harpoon. Yeah, uh, they fought a dugong, by the way, which um, I didn't know much about. I looked into. They're basically big old manatees. Yeah, there's it's like a, a whole part it's where a... they murder this dugong and, and eat it. <laughs> there's a Pokemon named Dugong. Is the only that's uh, all I okay. was imagining in my mind. Yeah, and this is when I started to notice that they were killing everything they encountered, and that pretty much holds true. Um, they encounter some strange animal, and then they find a way to kill it and eat it. Basically yeah. happens every day. There's like a water spider, giant water spider. Oh, and then the historic things are fun too, right? Like historic battles or sinking yeah. of ships. And I, I, I'm a history buff. Like I, I like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Not an expert, but I like to hear about that kind of thing. And threading again, threading our world in with the the magical world of Nemo, the sci-fi world that Nemo is is inhabiting in, in Aranox. Uh, and then Atlantis, we get Atlantis, which I was like, that yeah. was fun to, to, but it's like been surfaced, oh, it's cool to right? Atlantis. <laughs> yeah, it's been, yeah. but it's, it's like not underwater any longer. I thought they were underwater when they found it. Cause he like writes on a, on a rock, which okay, they, maybe they couldn't talk. I think they're in those like dive suits. At You're the right. Time. Yeah. Yeah. I th- there's something else that they see. That's like the, ru- the ruins of a city above ground. I thought. Yeah. Occasionally they do go above and they like stop on little islands and stuff. So, and sometimes it, you can lose track of like when they're underwater and when they're not. Um, I, I, I totally get that. Um, they kill, they kill that whale and milk it, which I thought was really weird. Like drink the milk and they say that it's just like cow's milk. Well, I think that was when they were killing the predators of the, the whales. And that one happened to be killed by those predators. And then, so they're like, was? oh, we can't yeah. let, let it go to waste. And they milk it. And I was like, can you do that? Uh, I don't think that that's it reminds me of the meet, meet the parents <laughs> thing where he's like, yeah, he's milking cats or something like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. You can, milk, nipple, you can milk. You can milk. Has nipples, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Robert De Niro telling me that <laughs> that little science lesson. Um, yeah, they took a they took a trip to the South Pole. Um, I was just thinking about like readers at the time, right? Like we, we all know so much about the world today. Like, it's so easy to pull up a YouTube video and see what it looks like on the South Pole. See what it looks like anywhere in the world. This was a time where all of a sudden it seemed possible to go to all these places. Like, there was no TV. There was no, no, you might see a picture. Maybe photographs were starting to become a thing. You know, drawings, I think, was probably mostly what you saw. Mm -hmm. So reading about this stuff had to just be like, 
you know, a drug. Like, I can see why this was so popular because it, it made you feel like you were there. Yeah. The claustrophobia of the Arctic, by the way, they have to like, mm. let's talk about the science of the Nautilus too, because I did, I found myself getting really fascinated by it because they go into extreme detail about how it's powered and the, the drill screw thing that propels it and the way that they're yeah. using electricity to power it. Um, so, but basically what they do though, is they come up like a whale and they, mm -hmm. you know, bring in new oxygen for the crew. And there were times that they were getting trapped under these icebergs that <laughs> kept getting us to the point where, uh, it seemed like they weren't going to be able to come up because it just was an ice sheet for such a long period of time and they couldn't break through. And then they get stuck. And that was the time where like people are passing out in the ship and they're out there trying to pick away at it in their dive suits. Um, yeah. pretty, pretty crazy stuff. You know, like you said, can you imagine what this would be like? Because, you know, if you're looking at drawings for context or you're reading things in a newspaper, it's hard to think that people were imaginative to come up with this kind of stuff. So you're like, you know what? Well, we maybe already talked was. about how people were like, maybe this really happened. Maybe this is like a guy really reporting something that happened to him. Because yeah. it was like, believe, like you could believe it. Maybe this is really going on. This is another good opportunity. I think we both had, um, our copies had a lot of these original illustrations that were from around the time. A lot of them were, came from the magazines that it was published in um, or in you know, subsequent editions. Um, and a lot of them were just really evocative, cool, like black and white pencil sketches. Um, you know, my copy above me here is like a, got a bunch of jellyfish on the cover it's just really cool and like i love the 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 look and view of that obviously i wrote an underwater novel so i'm drawn to that yeah. um, i do think it is cool it's like an alien space filled with life that is so unlike ours and yet is on our planet and shares a world with us um you know i've always found that really fascinating and i think you know Vern identified that and really you know leaned into it with with the visuals that he often describes these illustrations like really made the book for me too. I, I loved seeing them. They were a nice way to break up some of the some of the monotony that would happen with like technical terminology and explaining things, uh, breaking things down to like really base levels of how how it was, you know, maybe some pseudoscience, but how it was working scientifically. And I did read that the the version that came out because like you said, it, it was serialized from 69 to 70. And then um, they published it in 71 and it included 111 illustrations by Alphonse de Neuville and Edouard oh, cool. Rio. But 111 illustrations yeah. like that, again, that'll capture your, a child's imagination while they're reading through this story. Totally. Um, okay, let me finish this book out and then we can, we can put a bow on it here. Um, the novel's later pages suggest that Captain Nemo went into the undersea exile after his homeland was conquered and his family slaughtered by a powerful imperialist nation. Following the episode of The Devilfish, uh, Nemo largely avoids Aranax, who begins to side with Ned Land. Ultimately, the Nautilus is attacked by a warship from the mysterious nation that caused Nemo much suffering. Carrying out his quest for revenge, Nemo, whom Aranax dubs, quote, Archangel of Hatred, rams the ship below her waterline and sends her to the bottom, much to the professor's horror. Afterward, Nemo kneels before a portrait of his deceased wife and children, then sinks into a deep depression. Circumstances aboard the submarine change drastically. Watches are no longer kept, and the vessel wanders about aimlessly. Ned becomes so reclusive that Kinsei fears for the harpooner's life until Ned announces that they are in sight of land and have a chance to escape. Professor Aranax is ready to leave Captain Nemo, who now horrifies him, 
yet he is still drawn to the man. Fearing that Nemo's very presence could weaken his resolve, he avoids contact with the captain. Before their departure, however, the professor eavesdrops on Nemo and overhears him calling out in English, Oh, almighty God, enough, enough. Aranax immediately joins his companions and they carry out their escape plans, but as they board the submarine's skiff, they realize that the Nautilus has seemingly blundered into the ocean's deadliest whirlpool, commonly known as Maelstrom. Nevertheless, they manage to escape and find refuge on an island off the coast of Norway. The submarine's ultimate fate, however, remains unknown uh, until the events of a later novel called The Mysterious Island that he would publish, where he actually brings back Nemo. That's wild. I've heard of that one. Yeah. I think I feel like that's also a sequel to Journey to the Center of the Earth, right? No, it might be. I don't, yeah, I don't know, because I don't think it's a direct sequel in the sense that it's all about that. But at some point in that book, Nemo shows up and we learn more about what yeah. happened to him. Well, it's cool to have, you know, interconnected stories like that, too. Yeah. This, you know, this far back. Very cool, right? Uh, so, yeah, let's talk about the end of the book here. So I, I in in my version the creature that um, we were referring to that attacked was was uh, actually described as a cuttlefish, um, which are really interesting uh, cephalopods. Mm -hmm. uh, cephalopods uh, feature prominently in my book. So I was thinking a lot about them and the different kinds there are. And I was thinking about how often I've heard this interchange, right? Like I've heard of it be described as an octopus. I've seen squids. Cuttlefish is very different than both of those. Um, and, you know, it, it was definitely a cuttlefish, though, because there was like certain aspects of its anatomy that lines up with cuttlefish um and this is something he would have been researching at the time um really fascinating creatures didn't play as prominent a role as i always thought it would in this in this uh book now maybe uh, subsequent adaptations it features more prominently but maybe. here um i thought it was gonna like attack uh, directly attack the nautilus more i thought we were gonna see some like you know some more crushing as it was like wrestling with the nautilus and like all this stuff and like didn't really get all that yeah it would have been cool to see and i can see where you would go there for sure i think subsequent stories maybe underwater yeah. stories have definitely dealt with that i mean it's the most terrifying imagine a giant like the nautilus is massive and imagine yeah. something that dwarfs that and they can just hold on to it and as powerful and as advanced as advanced that that ship is yeah. thinking of it like against nature again seeing nature just I don't know. I'm for nature. I thought that usually, was the you know? final <laughs> boss of nature, right? I thought that was like the final boss we were going to face at the end. And it was going to be this like epic showdown. Didn't really yeah. quite get that. We kind of got more into the, you know, man versus man here. In this, yeah. At the end. Well, here. we see Nemo. Nemo's like, fuck these guys. These are the, this is the company, you know, the, the country yeah. that killed my people. Shadow organization that my, took, took out my yeah. family, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Very mysterious. I'm not going to name who it is, but um, sinks them. And yep. it's described as like the, all, them and all the crew just go down. And that's when Aranox is like, all right, maybe not. Maybe this is too much for me. Yeah. The fate of the ship, Nemo, and then even the fate of the people who get off are, are like main cast. They like, it just says that they kind of like wash up on shore. Yeah. Well, we know that at some point Aranox is publishing this, right? Because he's referencing this like as he's yeah. like a throwout. Yeah. He's like, he's this is like a, a diary that he kept and he's like talking about his time spent 20,000 leagues under the sea. I think we get the title here at the end, which sounds like it's going to be the name of his like manuscript he's going to put out, which gives us that sense that like, oh, that's what we're reading. Right. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, you know, there's a lot of fun visuals here. There's at one point where the Nautilus like pokes up into the air and then gets struck by lightning. I was like, oh, that was rad. That was pretty rad. Yeah, you know, <laughs> pretty like, metal. Pretty cool. Yeah, moment. it's like it's like electrified, you know, like it's got all this, these cool things about it. Like I love the the saloon. 
Um, mm. they, they just like pull up the 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 window and they can just see out into you know the sea and it's like oh you can see for miles like it's so clear i was like okay <laughs> maybe probably not but <laughs> um looks very cool here and like a lot of this makes for some great illustrations like we've talked about where they like you know show some really cool stuff very visual i'll be excited to see what the film does you know i know older film so it's not yeah. maybe not too much uh, special effects but it'll be it'll be cool to see i've never seen the film yeah me either um I think I've seen a version of Twenty Thousand Leagues, but I, maybe I've only seen parts of it because I don't remember. Like, a I feel like movie. I saw an animated version of some kind at one point. I don't know. I did read that he, he's been adapted over a hundred times in the film. Wow. wow. Um, so this is like a very adapted author. Um, you know, which which means there's just going to be multiple versions of everything. Um, I know I've seen. I think I've seen Journey to the Center of the Earth. There was like a really bad with the two thousands ish era movie that yeah. came out. Um, I think know, that's why I thought the Mysterious Island was a sequel. It's because of that movie, actually, because they he did both of those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those could be interesting bonus episodes if we ever decide to, you know, cover those. Or maybe those are just sure. the straight up, you know, main feed episodes. Yeah, I mean, I'd be interested to return to Vern. I think I would be. I want to would want to be particular about what we choose to give us a different side to him. Yeah, if I can find something like that, um, I'd be interested to do that. But. Yeah, man, this was a lot of fun. Um, I have thoughts again about this as it relates to my book, but I'll save that to the very end. But um, any last thoughts? It's an adventure story. So like you kind of take that for what it is. It's obviously very influential. We've talked about that a lot. Um, it surprised me in ways. And then in other ways, it kind of was exactly what I was expecting. A bit of there was kind of a slog for me. And I, I think yeah. it's just the era that it was released and, and what people were finding very interesting in maybe refining this as time has gone on. We've seen we've seen simplified versions and seen some some things that that capture some of the magic of what Jules Verne had. But he did it first. You know, he was the he was the originator, it seems, of a lot of this ideology and the way that sci fi was being handled at the time. So, you know, credit where credit's due there and happy to read more of his material in the future. Yeah, this is one that was kind of selfish for me. Like I wanted to cover this because it felt like this big gap in my my history of sci-fi. And like I, I'm glad I can kind of fill that in a little bit now. Um, yeah, very fun. And I'm excited to cover that adaptation next week. We're going to cover the 50s one. Apparently that's the most famous. Uh, we'll get into why, I'm sure. Uh, I'm excited to see uh, how they managed it in, in a time where I'm sure special effects were very difficult to pull off. So it should be a fun one. Yep. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review wherever you chose to listen. If you're on YouTube, give us a like and comment below what your favorite Jules Verne piece is, like what uh, his his work means to you. If you knew all this stuff about him as, as, a, as a figure in science fiction, um, we'd just love to hear from you in the comments. That's a good way to, to talk with us. I've been I've been trying to dive in there and respond to people on our previous videos. Yeah, and make sure to, that you're liking and subscribing there. Follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those at Ink to Film, and we're on TikTok. And look out for our YouTube shorts. We're all over the place. We are on Patreon, patreoncom film. And if you wanted to go on there, you can have still have time to vote. Um, if you are listening to this on either the day it comes out or the day after, basically you have until the end of the day Friday. Um, to get your vote in on what our next project will be. We're doing a community selection. And right now, the final three options are My Best Friend's Exorcism, Train Spotting, and To Kill a Mockingbird. So one of those three will be our next project. Uh, we'll be able to announce that hopefully next episode, what ends up winning. Um, and uh, yeah, if you want to vote, get over there real quick because you don't have a lot of time, but we'd love to have you weigh in. Yeah, I'm looking forward to any of those, honestly. They all sound really fun. Yeah, um, very different and, ways, but yeah, I'm into it. 
Yeah, totally. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. So yeah, here we are at the end. Um, I, yeah, I just thought this would be my, my moment to be a little bit selfish and talk about how this book uh, made me feel about my own. There's definitely a lot of stuff that I, I, I felt like, oh man, I want to like do some allusions to this. Maybe I'll sneak in a couple things here or there. I, I, there's a couple of quotes I really like. Maybe I'll include a quote or something as like an epigraph. Um, yeah. there's just a lot of fun stuff here, but ultimately it's also like, I didn't love reading this book that much. It wasn't like, uh, one of my favorite novels I've read or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't like how like sanitized a politics it is. That's not how I write. Um, my, my book is definitely a lot more political. It has a lot more to do with like using the setting and the situation as a metaphor to explore like real world politics and real world scenarios and you know explore how i feel about life and stuff like that um i focus a lot more on character um but i really appreciated the way that Vern is using science of his time to extrapolate out because that's definitely what i'm doing in mine uh in in my book so and i you know held back throughout the whole episode asking you this but in what ways did jules Vern sneakily influence this your story is there anything that you you know obviously cultural osmosis is a thing like did you did you feel like there was some influence there so my my current title for my book is beneath the the neon tide so um i don't know if that'll end up being the name it gets published under because a lot of times that's a marketing thing but um it's it's it has to do with a sunken earth it's set in the future like 2091 um the world's been sunken for 40 years after a mysterious event that flooded the world um, and there is a group of sentient cephalopods who are now in control of everything um, and have basically subjugated humanity and keeps them living in these underwater stations. Um, so, so cephalopods are a big part of it, right? Like tentacles, you know, um, the, the alien amongst us uh, kind of vibe. Um, I really like that. I think, you know, cultural osmosis is a good way to, to describe it because... 20,000 leagues under the sea and tentacles and like, you know, the squid and like all like that's like an, an image that has been foundational. I think in my, when I think of science fiction and underwater, those two things are like linked, right? Like, yeah, sure. You got HP Lovecraft a little bit in there too with like mm-hmm. the horror elements, but, um, but you gotta be thinking about like pressures and those kinds of things. So I, I saw the about pressure, man, firearms, underwater firearms. I know that's something we've talked about in the past. Yeah. Underwater firearms are like one of the, the things that made me want to write the book because I found out they were like a real thing that were invented. They create these uh, cavitations in front of the bullets that make them be able to fire accurately underwater. And I thought that was really interesting. And I was like, what would happen if I wrote a shootout underwater? Um, mm-hmm. And then like the, the story kind of grew from there. But that's the same kind of thing, right? Like that's that's an existing technology that I read about and then I'm trying to extrapolate out. And a lot of the st- times when I was trying to come up with like what is essentially 2090, right? So like kind of a generation, a little over a generation from now. Mm-hmm. So trying to extrapolate out from the technologies we have now, if we were to put a lot of our focus into underwater life, and living in that kind of an environment and living in, you know, these stations underwater. And then I have a little bit of um, cephalopod technology that they brought over. So there's some, I can, I can play a little fast and loose with it at times. I'm definitely not a hard sci-fi book. Mm-hmm. Um, I just try and play it as straight as I can with the science as much as, as much as I can not being a scientist. Um, so I also kind of appreciated that about Vern is that he, like, he wasn't a scientist. He didn't have like training in science. He yeah. just read about stuff. And that's that's the same thing I do. Like I read about all this stuff. I watch videos. 
Um, I look up specific things when I need to know how they work. And then I try and extrapolate out yeah. how it could possibly go, you know? The the deep unknown, like the the black chasm beneath you and then these pressures, like they're it's terrifying. Like I feel like you can't they call that even... philosophobia. It's like the fear of the deep. Yeah. It's a it's that. a real thing that people have. It's like it, it like how do you how would you feel if you were to like like tread water in a, the deep ocean mariana's trench right over top of the trench <laughs> well not even that just like the ocean right like you're out in the ocean and you don't know how deep it is and you don't know what's underneath you and like that fills people with a lot of fear and i think i have a, i definitely have a, like a touch of that mm -hmm. um i find the ocean like awe-inspiring i find it to be a powerful metaphor but also just like a it is like nature personified yep. it is this like unconquered thing that covers most of our planet yeah it's fascinating to me i've always been drawn to it in different ways i've always been scared of it in many different ways um and i you know when it came time for me to write a sci-fi novel which is what i decided to do i was drawn to that in the sense that it like it felt a little more familiar to me than space does um which is where where you know and, and i probably will write a space novel at some point but like yeah. it just felt like that was a little closer to home and something i i had stronger feelings about so i yeah. guess that's why i'm drawn to it even though i'm not a diver like I, i'm not i'm not someone who has spent my life in the ocean you knew people who were though but I, my father's a diver yeah. you know and my some of my family have would dive and one of the reasons i didn't dive was because i was afraid to yeah like the idea of it was terrifying to me um i've, I've taken like a, a dive tank and like gone to the pool and stuff i've just never like gone actual scuba diving in the ocean right um i've done snorkeling and stuff but like yeah it's uh it's interesting because I definitely feel a little bit like who am I to write this book sometimes, but, um, but look at Jules Verne, Jules Verne didn't travel all over the place. Gives he, me hope. You know, <laughs> exactly. Uh, you mentioned space too. And you know, with, with this ocean gate stuff, like I've realized more and more how like the water and going in the deep is more treacherous than going into space in some, in some regards. Well, it's the exact opposite, right? Because space is a lack of pressure. It is mm -hmm. nothing the the ocean is very much something yeah. and that's something that i definitely lean into my book as much as possible it's like you're not surrounded by nothingness like you are in space and sure there's a danger to the vacuum but the danger is being crushed by the excessive amounts of stuff that's all around you on when you're top in the, of you. when you're in yeah, the ocean basically. and on top of you yeah um and it's full of life and it's full of other things like and and you know ocean it, it's it's water you can't drink it will kill you if you drink it like it's it's always been so interesting to me right yeah uh in that way um yeah i i, I find it really fascinating this book was one i wanted to selfishly read because i felt like if i'm going to publish a book about underwater stuff on an underwater sci-fi book i need to have read this right yeah. and my best way to get to read something is to cover it on the podcast so <laughs> it like guarantees i'm going to read it and talk about it and think about it you know totally so that's one of the reasons why i wanted to do it so i'm kind of selfish on this one but you know that's why we have a podcast we get to do that every now and then this was fun and i'm glad i i got to talk about it and uh one day, hopefully, the book will be a real thing. People can buy, knock on wood. Um, it's I just know it's going to be a few years away from that, um, even thinking optimistically. Um, so I didn't want to get too into it in the, in the episode proper. But um, if you are curious about that, just, you know, follow me on social media. And I, one day I'll talk about it. You know, I have a website, LukeElliottAuthor.com. You can look on there where I talk about my publications. I do have some short fiction and stuff out. So it's a good a good way to keep up with that. Um, and I would love it if you, uh, if you're, if you're listening to this, if, if one day you would consider, uh, picking up this book that I hope becomes a thing. 
but yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're looking forward to it. All right, until next time. Keep adapting. <laughs>